0: you'd turn to Romans chapter 9, our text is verse, uh, verse 1 to 24, but our, the text I'm going to read now is not in your, uh, in your handout, in your bulletin, and so what I'm going to begin with is the last portion of chapter 8. So, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 8, you can join with me at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Uh, this word that Paul penned long ago that's true still. Uh, We exist for your glory. We are your property. And we are sheep accounted for the slaughter. But none of that will separate us from the love that you have uh, ordained us to receive, ordained us to benefit from. We thank you, Father, for your presence with us now. We thank you for your presence with us always. We ask you now to be with us, to open our ears, to hear your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Romans has how many chapters in it? Anybody know? You young people. Don't cheat, don't look at your Bible. It's a pretty big book. It has 16 chapters in it. And yet, a very simple, very simple outline of Romans could consist of three sections. The first section, Ends with what I just read. It ends with chapter 8 Section 1 would cover chapters 1 through 8 Section 2 would cover chapters 9 to 11 and then the last section would be 12 to 16 That's a typical way of dividing up Romans into like the biggest blocks that you can get and so the first portion 1 through 8 is an extremely intricate and beautiful presentation of the gospel what it is that saves us. And it's pretty much revolving all around faith. Salvation is by faith. And then 9 to 11 speaks specifically to the fact that God's opening up the gospel to the whole world does not nullify the special place that Israel has in his eye. And then you have 12 through 16, which is a lot of practical application of living as Christians individuals as under government as citizens and so that's just kind of generally three sections so now what I just read to you is incredibly beautiful I don't know if you mark in your Bible maybe you don't since it's a holy Bible I mark in mine and mine is a holy Bible and so I guess God will have to cut me some slack for marking up his holy Bible but I in past Bibles I've marked up all my Bibles through time And some of the Bibles, I would take like colored pencils and just color this whole section in the latter part of Romans 8. It's just beautiful. And when I became Reformed, I would highlight some verses in chapter 9. But I would imagine that many people don't have many marks in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is not a favorite. There are very few hymns written from Romans chapter 9. It's just not fair fun for most people and so it is with trepidation that I chose a topic on this but doctrine is important to God and as I've been going through the portion in John it's really been emphasized to me that this is what Jesus was hammering home with his uh, apostles in those final hours was the importance of doctrine and so. Uh, it's really good for us not to deviate far from from doctrinal messages. And I do, I probably deviate the most in terms of doctrine, so that's why I kind of feel it's important that I come back to it. So now, our reading is starting at verse 1 through 24 and I'll actually read it as we develop the message. I'm not going to read it all now because it kind of can get lost. So now, this portion of 8, 31 through 39, ends with this soaring majesty of the fact that nothing will separate you from God. Nothing will separate his children from his side. Nothing. And it is encompassing, -encompassing, all-encompassing, famine, sword, peril, death. It doesn't separate us. This is the P in the acronym that is used to kind of roughly compose the Reformed faith, T-U-L-I-P, perseverance of the saints. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that last one, the P, because it makes it sound like I'm the one that's persevering. Perseverance of the saints. I realize it's a collective way of phrasing it, but it does seem to put an awful lot of pressure on me to persevere. And so I want to absolve you and myself of that pressure. I want to give you a different way of phrasing it. It's a little longer, not as pithy. Perseverance of God... In saving his adopted children. I think that's better. It's too long. It will never displace it in tulip, but yet I think it is more appropriate, and I think it kind of is more specific to what really happens, because it's not us in this latter part of Romans 8 that God is talking about. He's talking about himself. So it's God that It's God that preserves. It's God that maintains that relationship that we have with him. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he who has begun a good work in us will complete it. So see, God began it, God completes it. We are active in it, but yet it's just such a relief to know that God's success in our glorification does not rest with our puny, and sinful contribution now i want to read 9 1 through 4. i tell the truth in christ i am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the holy spirit that i have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for i could wish that i myself were accursed from christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are israelites to whom pertain the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So see, the reason I wanted to begin with Romans 8 is that I wanted you to experience that majesty of how Paul ended that whole eight chapter uh, description, portrayal of the gospel, the justification by faith that we all enjoy. And yet, when he makes the transition, when he goes on to talk about what he's going to talk about, and that's about Uh, these 24 verses and the next two, two chapters, but he introduces it with this, that he has continual grief over the fact that his Jewish brethren are rejecting the gospel, and it breaks his heart. So he says, I could wish, and he's saying essentially what Moses had said long before, block me out of your book if you can't uh forgive these people their sin what did god tell moses at that time he said i'll blot whoever out of my book i want to blot out of my book you just do what i say that's pretty much that's of course the the brief version of what he told moses but that's what he said he just said you obey me i'll deal with these people as i want to deal with them and so that's why i believe paul says uh, for i could wish that i myself were accursed in other words He didn't work his way into God's good grace and into this saving relationship with God. He knows he cannot destroy it. He cannot trade it or barter it. He can't give it away to a fellow Jew that he wants to have it. What would he do? What he does, he goes out there and preaches the gospel. He risks getting beaten up and killed. And so that's how Paul was demonstrate in reality his love for people, he was wanting to see them saved, and he was doing what God had told him to do to see that happen, preach the word. And as Paul said in First Corinthians, the foolishness of preaching. That's how God has established us reaching people, reaching the lost. So now he goes on. And the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God, Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. So what is he talking about here? It is not as if the word has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So if you would turn to Genesis 17, verse 7, and he's, God is talking with Abram. And in verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and me, And you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, how many of you have read the Bible and been in the Old Testament and wondered just how God got out of that promise? Because is Israel now in an everlasting covenant with the Lord they weren't even a nation until 1948 after centuries, millennia and a half of having been destroyed as a nation. So see, Paul is addressing these people just on the cusp of Israel being destroyed as a nation. And so he's saying, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And what I just read to you from uh, 17.7 about Abraham is a few chapters after something that I now want you to read. Genesis 12, right after the first 11, where we have the beautiful portrayal of creation and the, the fall and, and uh, the uh, destruction of the earth, and now we are entering into these diminishing uh, lifespans of these folks, and now we have Abram. So see, he'd already given Abram these two blessings, these two full blessings. I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So see, these are kind of two different things. We get the muddy; The Jews got the muddy, certainly, and that's why Paul is trying to correct it here. He's saying, it is not that the word of God has no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So there are two Israels we're talking about here. There's a national Israel, an ethnic Israel, but yet there's always been this spiritual Israel. And that's what he goes in and he begins to expound with the rest of this and we'll walk through it. We won't take too long through this, but still uh, Paul walks through this and we must do so too. Okay, so now I want to first take you to uh, John chapter 3. What is the John 3.16 verse that we all know and love? For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. Who was Jesus talking to when he said those words? Anybody know? I heard it. Nicodemus, very good. He was talking to Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel. Let's read that. Starting at, I'll start at verse, uh, well, I'll start at verse 1. You, the teacher of Israel, do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. You do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm going to stop right there. No need to go to 316. Jesus is pretty strongly uh, rebuking Nicodemus because Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel, and he didn't understand the basics of how God has been relating to the people of the world, let alone the Jews, for two millennia now. So what is it that Nicodemus didn't get? What is it that he's telling the Romans that they need to get? It has to do with there being a spiritual seed. Not all Israel who are of Israel. So now let's go into this then. We've got two illustrations. We've got the life of Abram, where Abram, the blessing of all peoples through him, comes prior to him being told he's going to be a mighty nation. And then we have here where Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus over not knowing that the Spirit blows where it wills, and such is how it works. Okay, now, let's return to Romans and resume at uh, 8. Well, I'll start at 7. Uh, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And so we've read up through verse 9. And now let's continue on to Rebekah. And not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so let's stop right there. We've talked about a lot. In verse 11, he says, what is the reason for this? that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. The older shall serve the younger. And then we have this very, very famous, and I would say somewhat infamous, phrase. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Commentators, some commentators are very uncomfortable with that phrase, and they exercise quite impressive theological gymnastics to get around it, the clear meaning of what occurs from here on through what we've read up through verse 24. J. Vernon McGee says that hate means loves less. He says God is selecting Jacob for service instead of Esau, but not for salvation. I mean, he goes so far as to say that this has nothing to do with salvation. For all he knows, Esau could be saved. Billy Graham says that this does not pertain to a saving relationship, but to a positive relationship with God or to a negative relationship with God. Again, it has nothing to do with salvation from their perspective. So, are they right? Do these words not pertain to salvation and damnation? I have three reasons I believe they're wrong. First, the word election right here, What I had read that the purpose of God according to election might stand occurs 23 times in the New Testament. The word election or elect every time refers to people being saved. It refers to those that are being saved or the process by which they're being saved. But never is it just a throwaway word. Election is never a throwaway word. It's a serious word. God means something when he uses that word in the Bible. Now, why did Paul bring up the topic of Jacob and Esau? He's bringing it up in context here. Why did he bring it up? Because he's differentiating between children of the flesh and children of the promise. And so, does children of the flesh reflect merely a negative relationship with God that falls short of damnation? Of loss of your soul does a positive relationship that Jacob is promised through no merit of his own with God does that not indicate a saving relationship it just doesn't make sense why would Paul have brought them up in this context and said what he said if it doesn't have greater meaning then there is the clincher and that is what I can find no theologian that's willing to wrestle with who opposes this view? It's Paul's question. It's the very next question he asks after he shares this difficult news with his readers in in, Roman, in Rome. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, if as J. Vernon McGee says, this whole chapter is only revolving around how Jacob was chosen to be the head of the tribe of Israel as opposed to Esau. What would it matter to the people he's writing to in Rome? Why would they care? That was nearly 2,000 years ago that happened. How does it affect me? It's because it has nothing to do with what they're saying it has to do with. That's the the weakest read or the strongest of the weak reads that they can cling to to have it not mean what it clearly means. And so they all cling to it. You can go out through all these commentaries and they all cling to these weak arguments. And they ignore these questions. They ignore this impeccable logic of Paul's. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say? Then is there unrighteousness with God? And what does he answer himself? Certainly not. Certainly not. In verse 16, he repeats this. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. he had already said that earlier during the election portion, that the... Uh, Purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And then now not only does he cover works, because so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, that's the running, that's a work, that's an action of man. He's also covering his will. So then it is not of him who wills. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy mercy. So it's all about God showing mercy. It's not about man willing or running, thinking or doing, wanting or acting. It has nothing to do with man's will or his actions. It has everything to do with God's mercy. And he dispenses it to whomsoever he will. And that's what we're coming into now, the next portion at verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he will he hardens. Now again, what does it mean that God extends mercy to us? What do we need mercy for? We need mercy to escape his judgment. And it's throughout here. Mercy occurs in here like five times. So see, mercy from God. Now, it's true. There is his uh, great common mercy that is upon all of us, all of us in creation. God causes his reign to, to fall on the, the uh, good and the evil. He causes his son to rise on this earth every day despite our wickedness. That occurred all the way up till the moment Noah was placed in the ark and God shut the door. All had gone on just as before, and then the judgment came. But so, see, it is not of him who wills or runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, God not only extends mercy to whomsoever he will, he withholds it from whomsoever he will. Verse 18, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. In other words, they are hardened against his grace. They are hardened against his mercy, and he chose to do it. He wills to harden people. And then Paul asks his second very, very damning rhetorical question of the people that try to hold to a faulty view of this text. You will say to me then, why? Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? In other words, if God is choosing to extend mercy to someone or to harden someone else in their sin, this rhetorical person is saying, why then does he still find fault? Who has resisted God's will? Now, I want you to look at the answer in verse 20 because this is what we all ought to be comfortable telling people. When we say, oh, your God makes me out to be a robot. Oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing, and note that he says thing, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So then he goes on to speak of there being vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Uh, what if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So now, again, commentators get very creative here. And they say that this has nothing to do with salvation about the potter uh, making one vessel of honor, one vessel of dishonor only has to do with, you know how there's the later uh, long lecture by, by Paul on how all are not the eye, the hand cannot be envious of the eye. That's what they're saying. But yet it's right there, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now what Jane Burnham McGee said is that these are the Jews that killed Jesus. So these were the vessels that I guess can be particularly Uh, isolated to have God's vengeance laid upon them because they were pretty heinous for what they did, but that he restricts it down to that, that it's only really those people, those really, really evil people that crucified Jesus that deserve this level of condemnation from God the Father. I went looking for stuff and I found this. I was excited when I found this. It's on a site called freewill-predestination.com and it was on Romans 9. It was entitled, I forget, an exposition of Romans 9 or something like that. It's by a man named David Bennett. And it started out very promising. He said, someone wrote to me telling me that he believed in free will, but he had a hard time getting past Romans 9, especially the whole some vessels were created for destruction while others were created for worthy purposes. I can't shake that. How is that not election predestination? So he goes on to say that he will show this man from Romans 9 exactly how to defeat the Calvinists. And I'm like, this is wonderful. I've stumbled in to the very article that's going to show me how weak my argument is in Romans 9. And he even said... The Calvinists used the ninth chapter of Romans as proof of God's predestinating some for salvation and some for hell, and used Paul's three illustrations in this chapter to prove their point. God loving Jacob and hating Esau, hardening Pharaoh's heart, and the clay in the hands of God. And again, I'm so excited. I'm thinking he's going to address exactly what I think he needs to address. And he spends almost two pages on each one. But he doesn't exegete the text. He doesn't answer Paul's questions in verse 14 or verse 19. He just takes me on a romp through Scripture talking about various other things that supposedly now have proved the fact that Romans 9 can't be used by Calvinists. This is how he closes it. It's just frustrating. In conclusion, as I said before, Paul was explaining to the Jews that if God wanted to use and save the Gentiles that God in his sovereignty had that right, In order to understand that God is saying through Paul, one had to read what is before and what is after chapter 9 to get the big picture. Rather than taking one passage from Romans, one must look up specific words to see what they originally meant and what they meant in the context. And then he says, when put in biblical and historical context, there is nothing in Romans 9 for those in the Calvinist or Reformed theology camps to justify their doctrine of predestination. Yet he didn't exegete the text. I got to the end and I'm like, well, where did you prove anything? you didn't even comment on the things that are most damning to your view and so I was sad. (laughs) Now I went looking for more and yet he has a big sight. I mean this guy is determined to be the free will advocate for all of America I believe and he's failed at least in that regard. Um, But there are other people perhaps with better arguments and uh, I really ought to go looking for them. I ought to look for the best arguments that folks have. I went I remember back in 83, I was in a Bible bookstore and I pulled a commentary off the shelf, and this is what it said when I turned to the potter and the clay analogy in Romans 9. This commentator on Romans 9 said, This is the worst analogy that Paul could have used in Scripture. This is so inappropriate. And I just thought, wow, this guy apparently doesn't believe that the Bible is inspired, written by the Holy Spirit, that it is inerrant and that it is infallible to guide me. So he's just choosing things to disregard. It's sad. I went to another one that I remembered reading at that time, Ironsides, I didn't think I'd find it, but it's actually online now. And so I thought, well, maybe that was the guy, but it wasn't. It wasn't his commentary unless it's been extensively revised. But he presented all of these typical arguments that they do, what I called earlier, this strongest of the weak reads. But they don't deal with the text, they don't deal with these questions of Paul. Why would these Romans care? about the things that they're saying this means. It just doesn't make any sense, and they refuse to deal with it. Now, I want to give you another blog excerpt, and this is another person that holds these same views as uh, David Bennett or J. Vernon McGee or Billy Graham. I unequivocally affirm that the sovereign God has mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wants to harden. I would simply add that the whomever he has mercy on refers to all who choose to believe while the whomever he hardens refers to all who refuse to believe. This is consistent across all free willers. This is exactly what they will cling to. You take them to text after text that appears to refute this and they just cling to it. The passage demonstrates the wisdom of God's loving flexibility, not the sheer determinism of his power. Now. Tell me if you recognize this name, Greg Boyd. This is the man that wrote this, Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is a very, very popular open theist right now. He leads a big church somewhere, I forget, up in uh, uh, Washington, I believe. But see, so many cults have spun out of this faulty view of God and faulty view of man. Mormonism is one. It's a huge cult that is largely predicated on the foundational assumption that man has a free will and God will not violate that free will in order to get his point across. So see, what we have in this typical view that Greg Boyd presents is an equal opportunity savior. That's how they view what Jesus has done. Jesus did not die for any one particular person. He died for whoever all would come. So basically, Jesus is just flinging life preservers out there to all of us. Now, pity you if you aren't near a life preserver like the North American Indians were. So see, that's what really riled Joseph Smith. How could God have left all of these aboriginal Indians in North America to their own devices? So he came up with a solution. He wrote the Book of Mormon that spoke of Jesus after his ascension out of Jerusalem, coming over, setting down in North America, and sharing the gospel with them. Now, the Book of Mormon was only concerned about North America because that's where Joseph Smith lived. Perhaps there are other uh, people that might be concerned in South America or Australia or Papua New Guinea that would then have a Jesus manifestation show up there to make sure that they get their life preservers flung out to them since Christ is an equal opportunity savior. But he dare not come and place that life preserver around you. Oh, no, that would be to violate your free will. That would be to rape you. That's what he said. It's spiritual rape. That's what many of the free willers will say. Dave Hunt says that. That would be God spiritually raping you. So this faulty view of Scripture that appeals to, to the American spirit and it has just totally corrupted a proper theological view of the Bible uh, predominates these days. You'll see it in so many books that you read and if you're not careful you will imbibe it. It is in the air that we breathe. You can't pick a book up off the bookstore at the Bible that might not have this in it. Nowadays you might not pick up a book that doesn't have open theism in it. What is that? Open theism is the fact that God does not, does not ensure that there is a particular path through the future. He's just laid out this labyrinth through time of a bazillion different options, and it's up to each of us to explore those options that are appropriate for us. And God will not control you. God will not direct you down any of those paths, and he will dare not throw that life preserver on you, as opposed to just trying to get it close enough to where if you are so inclined, you will swim to it and be saved. So these folks explain away Paul's very, very cogent, precise logic in a way that just infuriates me. Uh, it doesn't help the, uh, the state of modern Christianity if we are uh, throwing portions of the Bible away that don't fit our preconceived notions, and that's too often what modern scholars do. I want to share with you one other biblical scholar, though, and how Romans 9 influenced him. And before I give you his name, I'll just tell you the story. When I entered seminary, I believed in the freedom of my will in the sense that it was ultimately self-determining. I had not learned this from the Bible. I absorbed it from the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day of our lives in America. Now, I've said enough selfs to where some of you probably have a hint at who this is. The sovereignty of God meant that he can do anything with me that I give him permission to do. With this frame of mind, I entered a class on Philippians with Daniel Fuller and a class on the doctrine of salvation with James Morgan. Emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. I met Dr. Morgan in the hall one day. After a few minutes of heated argument about the freedom of my will, I held a pen in front of his face and dropped it to the floor. Then I said with not as much respect as a student ought to have for their teacher, I dropped it. Somehow, that was supposed to prove that my choice to drop the pen was not governed by anything but my sovereign will. But thanks be to God's mercy and patience. At the end of the semester, I wrote in my final exam, Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like me. That was the end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. My worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures, especially Romans 9. Then 10 years later. 10 years later, I was on sabbatical from teaching at Bethel College. Another clue. My one aim was to study Romans 9 and wrote a book on it that would settle in my own mind the meaning of these verses. After six years of teaching and finding many students in every class ready to discount my interpretation of this chapter, I decided I had to give eight months to it. The result of that sabbatical work was the book, The Justification of God. I tried to answer every important exegetical objection to God's absolute sovereignty in Romans 9. But the result of that sabbatical was utterly unexpected, at least by me. My aim was to analyze God's words so closely and construe them so carefully that I could write a book that would be compelling and stand the test of time. What I did not expect was that six months into this analysis of Romans 9, God himself would speak to me so powerfully that I resigned my job at Bethel and made myself available as a pastor. In essence, as I studied Romans 9 day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized. It is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. Because of Romans nine, I left teaching and became a pastor. That was in 1979, so I'll bet Phil knows. Anybody else know? Yep, John Piper. And so Romans nine essentially had two tumultuous impacts in his world. First, it converted him as he entered seminary. And then 10 years later, it said, God said, become a pastor. And so since then he's been writing and propounding on the sovereignty of God. So see, what I fear is that sometimes and, and it's not the free willers alone that do this. We all can do this. We are all tempted by our natures to do this. We often want to go to the Bible to find ammo to shoot down another argument. Now, that's wonderful if you have a good argument, if what you're attempting to defend is right. But when you don't find ammo, when you scramble around in here and you can't find the ammo, begin to suspect that you are fighting the wrong battle that you're trying to justify something in your heart that it just isn't in God's word. So see, when we come to the word of God, we should come with humility. This is the truth. Who are you going to believe, God or your lying eyes? We have to be prepared to believe God. Let every man be a liar, including ourselves. We must be willing to sacrifice our personal idols, our aberrant beliefs or practices at the altar of God's Word. As I said before, God's Word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. If you really don't know how to tease those apart and apply them to your daily living, I suggest you do, I'm not gonna do that now, we don't have time. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, all three have very distinct meanings, very useful meanings to you as a person, as a Christian. I want to read two portions of text in closing. The first is from Hebrews 4, and the second is from Daniel 4. Hebrews 4, starting at verse 12. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight. See, now we've switched from the word of God to God because they're synonymous. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then let me read from Daniel 4. This is starting at verse 34. This is after Nebuchadnezzar has spent seven years eating grass like a bovine in the fields. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that does